It's a new year. It's a new sermon series. And I want to frame this just a little bit before we uh, go into the Word. Um, one, you'll notice that there's something very different about the bulletin this morning. If, if you look at the bulletin or you look up the passages ahead of time, you would have seen that there's a really long list, and that's not normal. We usually take one good chunk of Scripture and try to, to digest into that, or maybe two passages that relate to one another. But today there's just this really long list. And if you've already looked at it, then you'll know what I'm up to. But we're going to actually be reading from all four Gospels this morning, just short little verses. And so we'll be in Matthew 10.39, Matthew 16.25, Mark 8.35, Luke 9.24, Luke 17.33, and John 12.25. I don't necessarily expect you to keep a a finger in each page. Um, That'll be tricky, actually. But I do invite you to hear and pay attention to what's being said. The other thing that I would note, um, as that's a little bit different, but also as we talk about generosity, there's a certain uh, maybe toning down that just needs to be done. Often when, when generosity or finance is talked about in church, people kind of brace themselves, like this is the series where they're going to bother me for all my money. That's not what this is. Um, we do value tithing as not only a practice spiritually, but also a, a way to participate in the life of the church. And we'll get to that in more depth and detail later. But today, we simply want to talk about this paradox of generosity that exists. And it's a paradox of generosity that Jesus articulated and that was recorded in all four Gospels. And so, as you hear generosity, I invite you to know that we will talk about money, sure. But that this is not a series just about money. We are celebrating generosity here in this place. If you look out the south window, you would know that a tremendous amount of generosity has already taken place among God's people here to see where we are today. And sure, maybe the timeline was not as generous as we hoped or maybe as strict as we hoped, but we are celebrating what God is doing among us, growing in generosity as a practice and as a way of life. So is finance part of that? Yes. But also, this is not limited to finance. This is about following Christ in a self-sacrificing way. So, as we come before God's word this day, I hope you hear that, and I hope we hold to that, and that you can agree that what I've said about this series turns out to be true. But before we come to God's word, as we hear from all four Gospels, let's pray together. God, it is not the number of verses or the length of the chapters or the beauty of the language where the power lies. But the power of Scripture lies with your Holy Spirit, illumining the Word to us, making it living and active to our hearts, to our minds, that we may follow the blueprint for our lives that you have given us. May we hear these words in such a way that they sink into our hearts. May you, by your Holy Spirit, be present among us, that your word may be living and active just as you have promised, and that we may be people who follow you in every walk and way of life and with every part of our lives. This we pray that you strengthen us to do generously, and we pray that you generously pour your spirit out upon us now. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Turning now to Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And now to Mark 8, 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is starting to sound really familiar. Luke 9, verse 24. I listen for the pages rattling, and when that silences, then I know it's time. The same sound is also true when you hear uh, peppermint cellophane wrappers being opened that you've preached too long. <laughs> Luke 9, 24. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And now, just a few chapters later, in Luke 17, verse 33. Whoever whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. And finally, the last one, the cliffhanger to see if these are all the same or not, is John 12, verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's an incredible repetition of that phrase and of that concept. Twice in the Gospel of Matthew, once in the Gospel of Mark, twice in the Gospel of Luke, and once in the Gospel of John. And and this is particularly significant if, if you've read through the Gospels in particular you'll know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of similarities and and shared ways of explaining the gospel story. Uh, But John often sounds different. There's not as much shared material between the gospel of John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke we refer to as the synoptics. John has its own distinct timeline and and really evolved from a different uh, tradition of when after Jesus had risen again, people were writing down the gospel story. And there is shared bits of everything that Jesus had said because the Gospels weren't written by someone walking around and writing it down as a live active journalist. But the teachings of Jesus and Jesus' life story was preserved by people telling the story and the Gospel writers ascribing it, inspired by the Holy Spirit to capture the essence of the Gospel. And yet here is one of the few examples where even though John does things differently, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all contain this almost same verse. The wording varies only a small amount. Whoever finds their life or tries to hold on to it or keep it or seize it or grasp onto it will lose it. It will be lost. 
And whoever loses or gives of or sacrifices their life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, will find it. It will be given to them. It will be theirs. This is remarkable repetition between all four gospels. And this is a paradox, is it not? It's one more paradox that we find in Scripture. And it is also these words of Jesus that outlie for us a paradox of how we live, that if we are seeking our life and trying to hold on to it, we lose it. But if we give of it, we find it and get to keep it. And this concept in all four Gospels is the foundation for a life of generosity. There's no other coercion because generosity is meant to be a response. This is to live your life generously in such a way that we are giving of ourselves and that it is in the giving of our lives that we find it. Now I said even the, even the word variances are small. The most consistent one is the word for lose, which is apalumi in Greek, which in the particular way it's used means come to ruin. Think about what it looks like for someone to gain the whole world and yet their life comes to ruin. It's the riches to rags story instead of rags to riches. This concept of Jesus that has taught in all four Gospels that every single Gospel writer captured this idea and made sure to articulate it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all put this one in because it is the paradox of how we live the Christian life. The Apostle Paul expounds on this in 1 Corinthians 15, distinguishing between the perishable and the imperishable. And as we go through these next few weeks that lead us up to Lent in February, we'll be following Jesus' teachings on what it means to be generous. What does it mean to be self-sacrificing and one who gives of their life? For it is in the giving that we find, and it is in the holding that we lose. What does generosity look like? We have ideas on what that is. We also might wonder, alongside of all of this, when does generosity get you burned? When does being generous end up turning against you in a negative way? And of course, the question to follow that with, is that reason enough to not be generous? Now consider, if, if all of our foundation for generosity is based upon Christ's sacrifice on the cross because Christ gave of his life for us. If Christ's generosity is the foundation for which we live generous lives, then we have to wonder what consequences Christ would account for when generosity wasn't worth it. Now, just as we come to a time of confession in the service, I might wonder from week to week, you know, I don't think every single moment of every single day Jesus is watching what I do and saying to me, oh, good job, that was exactly what I wanted you to say to that person when you were angry. You know what? You're doing it great. You, you thought exactly what I was hoping you would think when you were frustrated. I don't think we do it perfectly all the time. And yet, that was not, our imperfections were not enough to prevent Christ from giving of his life on the cross for us. In fact, it's all the more reason. So when we mess up, is that a squandering of Christ's sacrifice? Well, theologically, we parse that out through understanding confession and assurance. 
and through knowing that our response to God is how we live generously, that it is not a paying back of God for his sacrifice, but it is our grateful response for what Christ has done for us. Because generosity and gratitude go together. Generosity and gratitude go together. They are inseparably linked. For it is from a place of gratitude for Christ's giving of his life for us that we live a responsive life of generosity. And it is Christ's generosity to us through the sending of the Holy Spirit to strengthen and empower us that we are filled with gratitude in the midst of all circumstances. And we'll get to that line of Paul, I have learned to be content in all circumstances later on in the series as well. But this whole idea of the paradox of losing and gaining your life, that verse appears because we can't just read a whole bunch of verses and not give them some context. That would just make my skin curl. But in Matthew 10, it's a priority of love that's being established. What things do you love the most? And it's very strong language. It's between love and hate. And ultimately, that's why it's whoever loses their life or hates their life for my sake will find it. But then it goes into hospitality in Matthew 10. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive the prophet's reward. Whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will not lose their reward. Captured in Matthew 10 is a reminder that generosity is not always big and showy and flashy. Generosity can be a cup of cold water given with a sincere heart for loving the benefit of others because generosity, true generosity, can't be faked because it is a method of the heart. There are outward acts that accommodate generosity, but generosity ultimately lies within the heart. And so, as I said, this is not the series where we say, give the church all of your money, because God doesn't need all of your money. What God is after is your heart. And if your heart belongs to Christ, then the life of generosity will be shaped by the gratitude that we have, living as God's forgiven people. In Matthew 16, the verse of whoever wants to save their life will lose it, whoever loses their life for me will find it is bookended between an understanding of discipleship and whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. They must deny all of their pleasures and wants, although we still get to enjoy life, but we deny ourselves, we take up the cross, and that is where we find our life. And it's followed with an understanding of gains. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, to gain the whole world, all the power and wealth and fame, and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Mark 8 follows the same as pattern as Matthew 10. Luke 9 follows that same pattern again, once again, of, of talking about generosity between discipleship and worldly gains. That it is in giving, it is of the loss of ourselves that we gain and retain. It is through the holding on, the seizing of our lives that we lose. Luke follows the same pattern, and John, John is one of my favorites because this passage leads into this idea of anyone who loves their life will lose it, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It leads through witness because we have to remember as people of God that we have to have a generous witness. There were some Greeks in John 12 
among those who went up to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, with the request, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, if the seed loses its life, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's a generous witness, because I think Philip might be a character that a lot of us identify with, because when we talk about witness, often we think of evangelism, which makes us worried that we might get asked questions that we don't know, there might be um, attacks on our faith that we're not sure what to do with, and all of that, we don't have all of the answers. But generous witness means that we are willing to point people towards Jesus, that it's not all on us. Generous witness is a giving of ourselves, an opening up of ourselves where we might lose credibility for not knowing all the answers. We might lose status because we believe such ridiculous things like the resurrection of eternal life. In giving, in loss, we gain and retain. Because what does generosity look like? What does it look like when you get burned by it? We talked about this in staff. One of the things that was articulated, we only feel that we get burned in generosity when what we gave didn't meet our expectations. And that might be more in our heart than in the actual outcome. And sure, we can look up reasons to not be generous. Examples of when someone was given a gift and it was squandered. Jesus has some parables about that too. And it doesn't prevent a life of generosity. There's plenty of examples of that that we can use, but all that we're really doing is garnering our hearts against generosity. Areas of generosity, what can exactly generosity look like? For us, I hope it's a generous hospitality. Is everyone welcome? Are they made to know that they are welcome? Are we generous? in our hospitality, because once again, this is a mindset of the heart. This is not a retention of names and faces. Made my mistakes there too. But this is a posture of the heart, that we're glad when we see people, that we rejoice because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we generous in hospitality? Generous in finance is maybe the primary lens through which we see this, but it's not just that. Generous in witness. Generous in our offering of simply, this is what it is that I believe. And even generous in conversations of disagreement. We don't have to look very far to know that there's not a lot of generosity in disagreement these days. Because if you are conservative or liberal, there is someone that you can listen to that will tell you, whoever doesn't think the way you do, it's not just that they're wrong, but they are a useless moron. We do not have generosity in disagreement. We have contempt in disagreement. And we can try to fight that by having better arguments and by showing how we are more right than them. Or, maybe the best way of fighting and resisting this is through generosity. And you don't give up any of your convictions when you're generous in disagreement but you can provide a different countercultural method than the contempt which we show 
that those we disagree with, there might be ultimately someone who is right and wrong, but not everyone that we disagree with has to be labeled as an incompetent moron. We need more generosity in disagreement. And that might seem intimidating at a macro level, that we can't change the national stage of things. But can it start here? Have you ever disagreed with someone in church? Can you be generous in your disagreement? Are there times when the relationship can have enough generosity of disagreement and conversation that it can be retained, even when there's going to be a difference? Or does it mean we have to just cut someone off? Generous in disagreement. Maybe that seems like an abstract concept. We can narrow it down a little bit, especially using this idea of whoever might gain the whole world but lose their soul. What if you never gave up an inch and you won every argument, if you're married, if you won every argument with your spouse? You might have gained the whole rightness of every argument and lost the relationship. You don't have to be married to understand that. This is for friendships as well. The friend who is always determined to be right and mostly just to show us that we are wrong. They might gain the knowledge. They might gain the the, the kudos to themselves that they're always right. And they might lose the friendship in the process if we're not careful to be generous, even when we disagree. The best way to practice this is simply to find someone you disagree with, and that's not hard because all of us disagree with each other on something at some level, and to be generous in disagreement. We need more Generosity. Christian Smith, um, who actually wrote, I'm kind of stealing his uh, book title for my sermon title this week, The Paradox of Generosity, also talks about emotional availability. That might seem like some silly concept, maybe a little bit trite, but once again, has someone ever been truly there for you in a time of need? Has someone been available for you in a time where you were distraught? Emotional availability can even be a measure of generosity. Think about what this looks like in your closest relationships because you know when someone's not emotionally available. I have a bad tendency of when I get home at night, get back from the office, and I'm still checking email on my phone. At that moment, I am, in fact, not emotionally available to anyone else in my house, whether it be my spouse who needs my attention, whether it be my toddler who just wants to have some time to play with dad, Or my infant, who, well, might not be as bothered by my phone, but it's still not a good habit because I won't be paying attention to him and he might spit up without me knowing and that's just going to make a big mess. You know what emotional availability doesn't look like. How do we practice an availability for others that it is evident, I am here for you. I am in here with you. One of the things I liked about finding this book by Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson is this is not actually written by a theologian. Because once again, we might get a little suspect, uh-oh, it's a theologian writing a book about generosity. This is the part where they ask for all of your money. Incorrect. Uh, Christian Smith is not a theologian. He's a sociologist, which is fascinating to me. He's at University of Notre Dame. Now, granted, he is a Christian, but he's a sociologist by trade. And this is actually a book about the paradoxes of generosity that we understand in sociology.
what he keeps pushing on is that this is a sociological fact, that in giving of ourselves, we find the fullness of life. And that through a lot of research, um, maybe we don't see this as well from the particular lens of which we view our lives, but we're not always a very generous society. We can be, and we celebrate generosity when we see it, but it's often viewed as this high ideal that's almost out of reach for the common person. The paradox of generosity has been told throughout the ages, through different proverbs, through different understandings, actually throughout the world, and Jesus sums it up in whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Generosity in all forms of life is where we find the deepest of relationships, the most legacy we invest in is when we're investing something outside of ourselves. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this one, but I wonder if anyone's ever bought something for themselves that they regretted. It wasn't everything you thought it would be. If you're lucky, you can return it, but maybe you can't. But you bought something, and it was not everything you thought it would be. And it's disappointing. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I suspect if we think about it, all of us can think of something that we've purchased. Whether an item of clothing or a car, at some level, what we bought for ourselves just doesn't quite measure up. It's harder to think of examples where being generous left us with that same feeling of disappointment. Because if generosity is about the heart, then it is a mindset. And sometimes the gifts that we give, whether it be the gift of our time, our investment in someone's life, whether it be of our finances or of our talents used for someone else, if it's given from the heart, then sometimes it won't be used the way we thought it would be. But that's not reason enough to prevent us from being generous. All these areas of hospitality, finance, witness, generous in conversation, generous in our availability to others. This has boundaries on it. This is not foolishness. This is not a complete loss of everything. Sometimes we do give out of sacrificial giving, where it's just all that we had and we gave it. And sometimes we get to give out of abundance. But in all times and in all places, our generosity needs to be founded on Christ as the foundation for our generosity. The surrender is where we gain. After all, the etymology of the word miser and miserable are the same. This is what Jesus basically taught us in all four Gospels. A miser, one who holds on, the Ebenezer Scrooge, loss, loses everything. Miser and miserable go together. So why be generous? Well, so that you're not miserable, but also so that we learn through practice what it is to give of ourselves and that we find our heart. And this is given, we've often used this idea of time, talent, and treasure. But we give all of those from a posture of the heart. And my biggest encouragement for this is try one that you're not used to. Whether it's time, talent, or treasure, most of us in this room probably have one area that we're used to giving, and it's good. Maybe it is tithing. Maybe you grew up knowing that this is what we do. We give 10%, and this is a normal part of your life. And so the treasure part is actually one that you've got down pat. Look at time or talent. Or maybe you're willing to give of your time, but your treasure is just yours to hold on to. Try that one. Or maybe it's using your talent for something beyond what you're used to. 
Reminder that for our building days, we don't actually need that much talent. We just need willingness, which is actually true, once again, of generosity, that it comes from the heart. We show up. We're willing to give of ourselves. But throughout the next few weeks, as we draw closer to Lent, when we observe the great sacrifice of Christ, consider what one area is hardest for you to be generous with, and just try a little. If it's impossible for you to give of money, just try to put a little bit in and see if it doesn't hurt. If it's being available with your time that you guard your schedule so closely, just try five minutes of true availability for someone. See what generosity feels like. But try the one that you're not used to because we all have different strengths and weaknesses in this. The inability to give is often related to give of ourselves in any form. If it's blamed on circumstance, I can be available or I can give money when, then it will never happen. It's not unlike an addict who says that they can quit whenever they want, but they never will. In the same way, if what prevents us from generosity is a certain particular circumstance, even if the circumstances change, our hearts won't. I know when I finally quit Taekwondo, a sport that I loved and, and had really found myself in, when I wanted to give it up because I knew I needed to change some priorities in my life, I was always waiting for the perfect time to stop. But there was always another belt test, there was always another tournament, and I wanted to fight in a tournament because I felt like I was good at it. There was never the right time until finally a date just had to be set. No matter what is coming up, this is the date that it just has to be done. A page has to turn. Generosity is the same way. Circumstances will always prevent us. Had a good conversation here a few months ago actually wondering about, you know, if I wasn't tithing, I could pay off my mortgage faster. But at the same time, I think what we agree on is if we're always waiting for the circumstances to be correct, the right time, the perfect time will never arrive. So try something. If it's hard for you to give of, of money, just give a little bit away. Just drop a quarter. See if it doesn't shock you in the plate. If it's time, just give five minutes to someone. If it's availability, just write one handwritten note and see what it looks like to give of yourself and see if you find yourself in it. Sometimes we'll give sacrificially. Sometimes we give from abundance. But in all times and in all places, in every example of generosity, it is a posture of the heart that cannot be faked. Practice what comes naturally. Try out what does not. And remember that generosity is actually for all of us to practice. One of the fascinating things that I learned about the word generosity is that up through the 16th century, what it literally meant was the classification of nobility. It was generosus, a Latin word to a French word to an English word. And what it meant was the nobility. It was people of a certain class. Therefore, we could understand generosity is just for rich people. But as the word continued to develop and as we continued to grasp more and more, the word really means nobility of character, not nobility of status or last name or family title. Generosity is related to all of us not just the high and lofty ideal. That's why if you're older or if you've read really old Bibles, the word, because there wasn't the word generosity when the New Testament or Old Testament was written, 
see if you know this verse. Faith, hope, and love. Ah, wait, I think I heard it. Charity. It used to be charity. And why was that? Because charity was a self-giving love. Faith, hope, and charity. Now, it's faith, hope, and love for good reason. Language changes. Interpretation and translation matter. But faith, hope, and charity. Because charity was the love that was self-sacrificially giving. And that was the love that was meant to be reflected through us when we are grateful for what Christ has done for us. Faith, hope, and charity. Not a pity, not giving out of guilt, but giving out of gratitude and true self-sacrificing love. So let's give of ourselves and find out if we find ourselves in it. A lot of verses, a lot of territory to cover, but one God who knows our hearts and knows them well. And it's before that God that we come to in prayer. Let's pray together. God, you have shown us the fullness of your love and the giving of your Son, Jesus Christ. Throughout Scripture, you have tested generosity and love and priorities through asking Abraham if he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. And yet, Lord, even in that instance, you provided. Lord, we trust in your self-giving love. May that be the template for our generosity that we give of our time and our talent and treasure not out of obligation and out of more than just habit, but that our habits of generosity develop out of the disposition of our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, our prime example of generosity, we pray. Amen.